Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Johnston Community College in Smithfield, North Carolina, underwritten by Anchor, where everyone can make a podcast for free. Hey everyone, it's Ryan Bradshaw coming to you from the campus of Johnston Community College in Smithfield, North Carolina. And today it's just you and me talking one-on-one. A little bit of background. When I started this podcast, the idea was I wanted to break down barriers between my seated classes and my online classes because the majority of my students were online students exclusively And I had very little ways of interacting with them. I mean, of course, I could, you know, do a synchronous class um, where they could see me and we could do lectures. uh, But a lot of these classes were asynchronous in nature. And so by that nature, uh, you're not going to have these dedicated times where we all get together, which is difficult in the in this, uh, you know, in the first place, if they're signed up for an asynchronous class, because uh, a lot of my students are working adults. They have families and other competing priorities. And so I wanted to come up with a way that we could have a classroom on the go. And that's where this podcast came from. And that was the original idea behind it. And over the past couple of years, it's really, uh, I think, grown in scope beyond that. Uh, so, yes, we do use it for uh, like a classroom on the go concept where students can put in a headset and listen to a lecture uh, while they you know travel or go to work or uh, or just relaxing at home, whatever it may be. But there's other opportunities that this podcast has provided, and namely the inter- the opportunity to interview individuals and to learn more about them and what they do. And there is a kind of a marketing component behind it because this is a podcast that we can record once and then indefinitely put it out there in the world and let people hear about programs, ideas, uh, concepts, you name it. And so it's a great way, a great medium to share information. And so... I just have a small list of things I was going to talk with you about today. This is uh, my first monologue. Uh, I think I've recorded a podcast by myself before, but it's been a while. And so officially, I'm going to declare this the first monologue, where it's just me talking to you about a few things that have come across my path recently and seeing what you think about it. So my good friend, Bill Raboli, shout out to Bill, he uh, he and I text on a regular basis, basis and Uh, I've known Bill for, I think, over 10 years now. Bill is a psychologist. He is a instructor of psychology, and uh, he is a, has a distinguished career of being a counselor and psychologist in the field where he worked with uh, families, where he worked with teenagers to uh, help them deal and cope with uh, whatever psychological battleground that they were facing. You know, he, he helped uh, many individuals with that. And so I kind of um, have been kind of his uh, mentee. Uh, he, he would say that we are co-mentors. We mentor each other, but I just like to just absorb information from individuals. I like to hear about you know, their experiences. I like to learn uh, from their experiences. And so Bill has been just a great mentor for me and has taught me a lot uh, and I still, you know, am learning from Bill. And so we have these very philosophical conversations that delve into the realm of psychology, sociology, politics, religion, you know, all the taboo subjects <laughs> that you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. But 
uh, we talk about the big issues of life. And in fact, Bill and I have a, uh, a date to record a podcast in the very near future. And the topic that I've given him is happiness and the meaning of life. So that is going to be our, our prompt. And as I've mentioned, maybe in a previous con- uh, podcast, I don't like to have notes going in, really. I like to just kind of riff and talk and see where the conversation leads. I do have a few notes today just because it is just me talking and I want to have something to guide me. But I've broken my notes down into three primary areas of discussion. And the first one is psychology. The second one is attitude. And the third one is leadership strategies. And so those are going to be the topics I'm going to talk with you about today. And we'll just see how it goes. But the reason I picked psychology first is because I sent an article uh, I, I try to read you know, several articles a day on various topics, kind of uh, some of it is, um, most of it is business in nature. I, I try to stay up to speed on what's happening in the business world. That is my area of focus and my concentration. Uh, and so I try to make, make sure that I'm abreast of um, all the current happenings in the business world, or at least a good understanding of, of where the business environment is. So I can speak uh, on those topics, but also share that with colleagues uh, to help them be aware of it. But I also try to um, read articles from different disciplines that come across my path. I'm, I'm interested in science. Uh, I, I love reading about artificial intelligence. Um, I'm interested in psychology and, and articles that cross my path with that. And so yesterday afternoon or late yesterday evening, uh, an article crossed my path about relationships and and neurological, physiological impacts that relationships have on people's life. And it was really interesting to read about how uh, they actually can discern differences in people's brains uh, when they're in a relationship, when they're in love, when they're heartbroken. Uh, So there is a legitimate physiological response that happens when you experience these different emotional states. And I think that's fascinating because um, if you've ever, you know, we're, we're two weeks out from Valentine's Day, and if you've ever suffered heartache or heartbreak, you feel physical pain in your body. Uh, and uh, this article, I need to find the article. I'll dig it up. Uh, I sent it to, to my friend Bill, and I will put that in the show notes. I'm making a note uh, right now to include that. So, But, yeah, it was just fascinating that uh, these um, – Cognitive processes, these these cerebral co- uh, processes, create these emotional and physical outcomes, where you feel physical pain for extended periods of time, almost irrationally. How long we feel these these physical pains, uh, you know, and elation, you know, within these relationships. So I thought this was fascinating, and I sent it to my friend Bill, and he wrote a a nice. Uh, reply back to me that was um, not too long, but it was a more lengthy lengthy reply than I put in. And he asked me two questions uh, that he wanted me to ponder and and respond to. And I said, you know, I'm going to think about these for for a little bit and then respond to you. So this podcast is my response to, to Bill and the two questions he posed to me. And the first question is, how much does the environment influence brain chemistry? And so this is an interesting question, and I've not done any pre-research on it. This is me just um, talking about this in, in, in the context by which I've, I know. And I have studied psychology, but more so um, I'm friends with Bill. And I think Bill has really taught me quite a bit over the years. I don't claim to be an expert. I'm not a psychologist. 
But I feel like um, your environment is such a key factor in how your brain chemistry is influenced. You know, for example, uh, if you if you're cooking something, you know the type of ingredients uh, from the region in which you live impact the outcome by which the dish is pre- you know, the ultimate dish is prepared. And so the same thing I think is true for human beings. Um, the area in which you grow up, the environment in which you exist, influences your outcomes. And so uh, depending on what part of the world you're from, what the environment is like there, what the temperature is like, what the, the, the amount of sunshine uh, that's available, uh, is there a lot of green around or is it a uh, monotone look? I mean, your brain needs stimuli from the environment in order to have responses. And so how, how much uh, environmental stimulation is there? Is there? Is there a physiological difference in somebody's brain that's raised in a very busy city versus somebody that's uh, raised on a on a farm and has very little stimulus, you know. So these are these are interesting discussion points, and I'll say to I'll respond to my friend Bill and say I believe the environment does have a great degree of influence on brain chemistry. Um, you know, different subject, but but linking into it, um, I actually studied criminal justice uh, as one of my undergrad majors, and um, I've long been uh, a someone that disagrees with solitary confinement as a means of punishment. And I think solitary confinement is is akin to torture. And there was actually an article that came out in the past week that I read pretty much confirming that belief that solitary confinement has a severe psychological impacts on individual individuals. Because when you put them in a sensory deprivation environment, um, you're basically... Uh, creating torture for the brain for that individual. They're not getting the stimuli. They're not getting the interaction. And, uh, yeah, I just think that is a, a very torturous way to treat individuals. So so the second question he asked me was, is how much does brain chemistry influence the perception of our environments? So um, once again, you know, if the first question was talking about the environment influencing brain chemistry, and now how does brain chemistry uh, influence our perception of the environment. Remember, perception is not reality, but what is reality? And I'll get back into that in a second. Um, and so some, I, I guess I'll just allude to that. I guess some would say reality, it's real if the person believes it's real. And so this is uh, kind of leaping to a business um, concept. But if I say something that I believe is not offensive, but it does offend somebody, is that thing offensive? And it's a very subjective thing. And the answer is, if the person believes it's offensive or is offended by it, then yes, it is offensive. And so uh, in that same note or in that same vein, uh, you know, how our environment uh, influences brain chemistry and how that influences our perception of things uh, is, is really kind of increase this feedback loop. Our environment affects us, and then we are affected in how we perceive that environment. So these two questions led me to two more questions. And so um, I actually created a third and a fourth questions off of this. And so the third question is, how much does that perception influence our choices? And so we live, you know, myself and my my colleagues and, and my friends 
we live in the United States, and we have this ideal that we are a free country, free to have autonomy and make choices uh, as we see fit. And so, you know, free to live our lives, free to pursue happiness, all that good stuff. But this, this brings to a question in my mind is, how much are the choices we make actually our own choices, or are they conditioned choices that we think we are making a free will, but yet we are just following a prescribed path? And so this really messes with people's <clears throat> sense of reality and sense of uh, autonomy because um, a lot of people would say, no, I'm, I'm in control of my life. I make my own choices, you know. So what I'm getting at is there is a cookie cutter approach that was presented to me earlier, early in life, which is you go through school, you know, K-12, you go to college, you get a job, you get married, you have you buy a house, you have children, and you work, 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 retire, die. That is a kind of a cookie cutter approach to a prescribed life. And I think for my myself and a lot of my classmates growing up, that was a norm cookie cutter lifestyle, you know. But there was, and just specifically, there was this norm for everybody must go to college. And I, I, I'm biased. I love college. Uh, I work at a college. Uh, but looking outside of my own biases, I think most people would acknowledge that um, college is not the right fit for everybody. And I can back that up by saying that the dropout rates is extremely high for a reason, because college is not the right fit for everybody. Um, and I'll say this also, by I know family members that chose not to go to college because um, that wasn't the right fit for them. However, that being said, they may have spent a part of their life feeling like they weren't normal or conforming to a norm uh, because of that, because of this cookie-cutter outline. And so um, the choice to do things like go to college or get married or have a career or whatever it may be, how much of a choice is that or how much is that a, a norm that and, a, and a, a construct that society or our environment has created for us? And so this starts to really, like I said, get into those questions of what is reality, what is choice, you know, how much control do I have over the choices I make? You know, these, these types of things. Um, I think, you know, you feel like when you're younger that you have an infinite amount of choices. And as you grow older and more defined in your path, those choices are more limited. As an example, if I wanted to get up right now and say I want to go tour Europe for a year, that would not be a viable choice. <laughs> it may, you know, it may be, but, uh, you know, I guess in reality I could drop everything and go do that. But in practicality, that is not a viable choice. You know, number one, I'd sure miss my family a whole lot. Uh, but number two, um, I would be ignoring all the responsibilities that I have, quote unquote, chosen to take on. So, yeah. And so this leads me to the fourth question that I ask, which is, do we really have choices or merely the perception of choices? And so this is a deep philosophical slash psychological conversation um, you know, to be human, what, what choices do we have? You know, like every day we have a physiological demand upon us. We have to 
you know, we wake up, get up, do something, you know, we have to eat, sleep, drink, use the restroom. These are not choices per se. These are physiological demands. So if we know that we have these physiological demands on us, what psychological demands are there that we may not be cognizant of, we may not be thinking of? What um, demands are within our psyche, within our consciousness that have been placed upon us through um, norms, through societal expectations, through uh, you know other measures that we're just not aware of? And so these are really deep conversation points. And I'll end this conversation talking about a book that I picked up last week called The Loop. And The Loop, I'm going to have to dig up the author's name real quick. Hang on a second. Um, I heard about it on a news story, and it really fascinated because it's, it's talking about artificial intelligence. So The Loop is a new book that came out J- January 25th. It's by Jacob Ward. And it talks about, <clears throat> the subtitle is How Technology is Creating a World Without Choices and How to Fight Back. And so what it's basically saying is that we have had these loops uh, within humanity for, for eons, millennia. And basically, we have the first loop where humanity exists uh, with our own choices, our own intuitions, our own impulses. And then the second loop that we've created is a feedback loop where <clears throat> we make choices and some type of um, uh, computer or uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? <clears throat> some type of artificial intelligence, but it's an algorithm. That's what I was trying to reach for. Some type of algorithm has observed those choices, cataloged those choices, and feeds back recommendations to us. For example, when you go on eBay and look at an item and they go to Facebook, that item is going to be offered to you again somewhere. Do the same thing with Amazon. <clears throat> and so we constantly create these these bubbles and feedback loops where an algorithm somewhere is going to say, hey, this person liked this. They might also like that. There's a great documentary on Netflix about it called The Social Dilemma where it kind of pigeonholes us into, it wants us to more and more be in an environment that we like. So it's going to keep feeding us things that we like and reinforcing the good and, and ignoring the bad, the things we don't like. And so the third loop is when artificial intelligence will grab a hold of all this and more and more feed us um, choices that, you know, we feel like we're inclined to make. uh, And one day could come to a critical point where we don't make choices anymore. Everything is kind of predetermined. And that is a scary dystopian future. And so just wanted to put that out there. It's called The Loop. Um, And once again, by Jacob Ward. I've read the first few chapters, and I think it's a fantastic book so far. I really like the early examples uh, he talked about with a generation ship, which we'll have to read to to learn more about that. But I will say one more note uh, on this topic before I leave. You know, um, I'm an advocate for education. Uh, obviously, I work uh, at a college, and uh, I went to college for a long time. <laughs> I think I went, I think, 12 years in higher ed. Um, and so that being said, the reason why I believe that is because education equals opportunity and education is enlightenment. You know, the more we learn, um, I think you take off another blinder every time you learn new things. And so uh, I'm, I'm a big advocate for continuing to learn, to be a lifelong learner. 
and to continue to ask these difficult questions and see where it leads. You know, we, we don't know. All right. So the second thing I want to talk about today was attitudes. Um, I had a conversation with my, my friend Bob Hildenbrand, who is the department chair of transportation logistics, or I'm sorry, logistics, transportation, and supply chain management uh, over uh, on the other side of campus from me, but super guy. And just the early observations with Bob is that he's just very positive, upbeat, and very generous with his time and excited to get get started. And so he, he just has a great attitude and that made me want to talk about it some more, which is uh, I've got three bullet points here just to talk about briefly, which is the first one I mentioned about too is it's called playing the slice. Um, I've never been a big golfer. Uh, I've tried playing a few times with friends, and I'm just terrible at it, to be honest. I'm just not a great golfer. Never developed a feel for it. Um, I've never been a, a great athlete, you know, and that's always – I've always felt like, you know, that's just something that I'm missing. I'm just not an athletic person. I played I – I was a chess club in fifth grade, so there you go. So just not not the athletic type. But um, I appreciate the game of golf and, and understand how difficult it is to play. Uh, and I appreciate the time that people uh, give to it to get better at it. <clears throat> and there really is a zen thing to golf. If you can uh, play it well and, I mean, th- think about the geometry, the power, the physics of it. I mean, there's a lot of thought that goes into it. And there are some very Zen things that occur in the game of golf. But uh, when I played golf a long time ago now, I would play and I would, I would, you know, get up to tee. I would have this driver in my hand and I would draw back and I would whack the ball as hard as I could pop. And that ball would fly, you know, at a right angle going, you know, (laughs) going far away from me in the wrong direction. Instead of going forward, it would go to the right at a hard angle, you know, 90 degrees. And so, like, that was a very common mistake that occurred over and over again for me. And I never, like, kind of could get that, you know, fixed. I I tried a couple different things. And so, like, my friends would – I think they took me to golf just so they could laugh at me, and that's fine. You know, I get it. It's funny. Uh, But uh, it actually taught me, you know, that – we had this conversation, and they said, man, you should just play the slice, which means that I should just turn the other direction. Instead of facing forward, I should just face, you know, to the left and hit the ball so it'll go the direction I wanted to go. And, you know, that probably would have worked. But it made me think about this idea of playing the slice. You know, just because in life something doesn't work the way it's supposed to uh, work doesn't mean that it can't work at all, you know. And... Uh, oftentimes we get boxed in in leadership, we get boxed in in business to thinking it has to work this way. There is no other way for it to work but this one way. This is the only way. This is the way we've always done it. And so I I just want to use this analogy to think about playing the slice in other situations in life. Because I'm very much for if we can't do it, you know, if we can't figure out the way that we're supposed to do it or the way that it's been done all before. If we can't get that to work, there is other ways to make things work. Why can't we figure that out? Whatever that is. And we don't have to do it because it's my idea. Let's just figure out the best way to do it, whatever that is, and, and, and go for it, you know. And so I encourage you all to play the slice, to figure out ways of doing things that may not be traditional or typical, 
because there are better ways to do things. The way we do things now will not be the way they're done 50, 100 years from now for certain. You know, understand that. I'm talking on an iPhone right now that is a marvel of modern technology, but will be laughable in 50, 100 years from now. And so all these beautiful processes and things that we do that we think are the end-all be-all, they are just a passing thing. And so we need to continue to think about ways to innovate and ways to play the slice to do things differently. Um, the second bullet point about attitude is this thing that, that came across my my desk in the past uh, couple of weeks, and this idea of actors versus experts. Um, some of our frustrations in business and in life are because we're not dealing with experts. We're dealing with actors who are pretending to be experts. And so we wonder why we don't get outcomes that we want, because in our mind, when we want something, we have an ideal. This is this is the ideal outcome we want. And we turn to somebody that is an assumed expert to give us that ideal. And then when we get to the outcome, it's not the ideal. You know, part of that is because there are a lot of actors in in politics. There's a lot of actors in business. And these are individuals that are pretending to be experts, but they really don't have expertise. And I guess the best analogy I can offer is no rational person, I, I don't think, would go to a surgeon and say, here, here's a scalpel, go for it, unless they had certainty that this person was an expert. And, you know, I watched a documentary, uh, it, was, it was actually a docudrama on Peacock uh, within the past six months. I think it was called Dr. Death. And it was about this surgeon who was this world-renowned uh, back surgeon, I think, I'm, I'm guessing we're well renowned. He was he's very well re- regarded. Uh, I'm looking it up right now to give you some more details. But, um, yeah, it stars Joshua Jackson. It's on uh, on Peacock. And it's the story of Dr. Christopher Dunch, a young charismatic star in the Texas medical community. And so what happens is that this guy steps into the role of this, this, this back surgeon supposed to be doing all these great things with the, in the world of surgery and the guy is just just horribly bad at it i mean the first day the guy walks in another surgeon is looking at this guy doing his thing and is like what are you doing like i, I can't believe what i'm seeing and then it was like red flags instantly and they had to go through so much red tape to get rid of this guy and eventually i'm not going to spoil it for you but Dr. Christopher Dunch, D-U-N-T-S-C-H, Dr. Death, Peacock. I highly recommend it. It's worth it to get a, a limited subscription just to watch that. Really thought it was interesting. There's actually a, a documentary follow-up called Dr. Death, The Young Doctor's Story. Um, and what happens when we rely on expertise and we have an actor, somebody that's not truly an expert? And so uh, the reason I wanted to talk about this briefly is that uh, I want to encourage everyone to be an expert. You know, know what you're talking about. You know, you only get one life, one shot right now, and you might as well know your craft, whatever it may be, and know it well. Um, don't don't be a fake it till you make it type person. You know, I mean, it's okay, I guess. You know, for a limited time, if you don't, if you're uncertain about things, but know your craft, whatever that is. There is more to education than going to a college classroom and sitting down and getting lectured to and, and taking those formal college classes. Read books, watch YouTube videos. My, my daughter brought me a bracelet 
two nights ago, I looked at it and it was blown away by how well crafted it was. I couldn't believe it. I was like, I can't believe how well this, how good this, the good of the job she did on this. She looked at me and said one word, YouTube. She watched a YouTube video, how to make this bracelet and crafted this thing. And it looked like somebody had been doing this for years. And it was just so revelatory. And I knew this already, but there's so many things that we can learn and, and we can, we can learn our crafts. And so I want to encourage everyone to be experts, not actors. I think my good friend Bill would agree. And so the last point I had on attitude was the have tos versus the get to. And the reason this came up, um, this is a saying my dad has said for years, shout out to GB, my dad. Hello, everybody. But um, yeah, you know, I think dads are, uh, you know, these figures in our lives that we love, but at the same time, they drive us a little nuts. And I think all dads would agree with that because I think I drive my kids a little nuts sometimes. And so, but yeah, my dad is a great guy and has a lot of knowledge. And I have tried to absorb that knowledge. Uh, and one thing that he has instilled in me is this idea of get to versus have to. Uh, meaning that, you know, people would say, oh, I have to go to work tomorrow. And he was saying, no, he'll say, no, you get to go to work tomorrow. You have the opportunity to get up to wake up, to hit the road, to go do something productive, to earn a living, to provide for your family, to help society, to make the world better. This is a this is a paradigm shift. It's an attitude. It's a difference in the way we view the world. And so um, this kind of hit home for me this semester specifically because this is the first time in about seven years that I haven't taught a class. And, um, you know, as a teacher... You know, you go through the the processes of having to do the administrative back end and uh, prepare lectures and lecture and then grade and do all the administrative stuff. But I got to tell you, I actually miss lecturing this semester. I miss the interaction with my students. And so I wanted to share this this ideal with you, this this thought of get to versus have to, because um, it's a privilege, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to um, have those interactions with students, to be able to hopefully do something to make their life better, to inspire them to be better versions of themselves, to encourage them to get out of bed, to go do something productive, to make their life better, to make the lives better of the people around them, to change our our city, our town our state, our country, and it really is one person at a time. It really does come down to that. So uh, I just, that's something that kind of uh, I was marinating on and wanted to share with you. And so this brings me to my last topic of the day, which is leadership strategies. And so there's this thing called FUD, F-U-D, which is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, I would add one more to that and call it AFUD, which is anxiety. And so anxiety, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, they're very appealing uh, from a, a clickbait situation. Like if you want to get people to click on an article on Facebook, scare them. You know, hey, you know, there's a, there's a meteorite coming to crash into Earth, maybe. Click here. You know, and so like that type of stuff, it garners clicks, it garners attention. And uh, old school management philosophy was to scare people. You know, you will do this work or else. 
you know, or you will fall in line and do this or else. And what that does is create anxiety, fear, uncertainty, doubt. And once again, I, I had a conversation with Bob last week and we talked about leadership and it made me, I had this thought about this afterwards that I wanted to just share as a, as a afterward on that. And, you know, using anxiety, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, it's not a good thing in the workplace. It's, it's really bad. Um, it's bad management technique and it's really bad science. The science, the research says that it will actually lead to more turnovers, more absenteeism and less productivity over time because people don't want to work in an environment where they fear uncertain, where they feel like, I don't know if I'm going to have a job next week or next year. I don't know. And they will leave you. They will seek out other opportunities and say, it's been great working with you as they walk out the door. And so it's a bad strategy. And I, I, I just wanted to bring that to the forefront and let you know that the way we um, lift people up is through encouragement, through open dialogue, um, be transparent, you know, be an open book, let them know, let, let people around, you know, this is what we're trying to accomplish. We want to be a place of encouragement. We want people to feel welcome. Uh, we want, you know, this to be a second home away from home. Uh, of course, we've got to get things done. That's business, but we don't, we, there's no need to have a work environment that feels miserable. It's just not, it's not productive. It's not good. And so I want to encourage you to leave the bad strategy of AFUD behind and I want to offer you a better strategy. And that strategy is courage as a strategy. And the reason I mean, I say courage is because it takes courage to be a good leader. It does. And you have to do things that are difficult sometimes. You have to get outside your comfort zone. As my friend Matthew says, <clears throat> you have to stretch yourself. I'll give you an example. It's easy as a leader to sweep things under the rug and hope they'll go away. I think every year <clears throat> in higher ed, I've had to take a uh, workshop or a, a safe college's training on sexual harassment. And the big problem besides the individual that's causing that problem is that leadership and management does not address it immediately. That's the big problem is that they don't have the courage to say, this is wrong. We are not going to tolerate it. And so courage as a strategy means that we address problems immediately. We don't sweep them under the rug. We, you know, we observe, we watch, we listen, we act. And so um, I think often in leadership, I've seen leaders that will observe, listen, but fail to act. And what that does is it causes employees to be disenfranchised. They learn that, hey, you know, nobody, they, they, they'll listen to you, but they don't really care about my issue, whatever that may be. And so you've got to have the managerial courage to act and to make sure that when you do act, you're acting with fairness and, and, and being just in mind, uh, making sure that you're following uh, the policies, and, but also doing the right thing uh, that you know in your heart to be true. And so how, think about that as a strategy. Think about how we can be courageous as leaders. And so I'm going to leave you with that thought and let you know that I am going to be launching another episode probably on Friday, hopefully, which is just a few days from now. I hope you've enjoyed this brief monologue, and I look forward to talking to you in the near future. Thank you all for being here, and have a great day. Talk soon.